No grave could restrain him. He is reigning and he is ruling and he is one day returning. And we get to gather right now, and I I say this frequently and hopefully we'll continue to say it because it really is a joy and privilege to be able to gather together and to rejoice in King Jesus and to make much of him together. We get to continue doing that as we move through our series in Revelation. Last week, we were blessed with the opportunity to hear from Dave Parsons of Unto Ministries, humanitarian work and reach, and greatly encouraged by our global outreach partners. And so when we're able to have one in, we, we need to take that time and celebrate and, and be encouraged by them. But now we're going we're gonna to dip back into Revelation, even though next week we're going to start an Advent series. But as we dip back into Revelation, let's remember what it is that we are beholding in this letter. We're beholding King Jesus, the reigning, ruling, one day returning King over all. And because that's who we are beholding, we have all that we need to hold on to the end. May that be our encouragement today. If you have a Bible, please open up your Bible to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 12 through 17. There are seven little letters within this big letter called Revelation. These seven little letters are directed to the seven churches in Asia Minor, which is essentially modern-day Turkey. It is representative of the church as a whole. It's dealing with all the kinds of things the church will experience in the history of the church. And we are going to be looking at the letter to Pergamum, to the church in Pergamum. So starting at verse 12 of Revelation chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. You do not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. God, we come to you, God, over all. We come to you in in maybe a season of weariness. We come to you wounded. We come weak or wobbly. We come to you now, and we pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to understand your word, your truth. They would bring great encouragement to us. So please be with the preaching and the hearing and the receiving of this, your word, to your glory and to our good. In Christ's name, amen. There are two verses in the Bible, when set next to each other, compel us to consider the importance of what we treasure, of the things that we hold dearest and most important, the things that we treasure in our hearts. The first one comes from Jesus, and it's found in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. 
For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The other verse is found in Proverbs 4, verse 23. It says this, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. When you take these two verses together, dealing with what we treasure in our hearts and how it shows up in our lives, we find this truth to be at, at, on display, that your heart is going to be fixated on what you treasure. And what you treasure will shape how you live. Your heart will be fixated on what you treasure, and what you treasure will shape how you live. At the heart of the issue in Pergamum is an issue of the heart of this church. And so it will be for us. It is and will be for us. Let us then carefully, seriously, and hopefully consider what we find here in the letter to Pergamum. Now, if you recall a couple of weeks ago or a few weeks ago when we started these letters in in Revelation, we saw that there's a basic pattern Again, just to remind you, the basic pattern of these letters is there's an analysis, there's an exhortation, and there's a promise. In our letter to Pergamum, the analysis is very similar to the last one that we were in. It's a very difficult cultural context, and there's intense spiritual opposition. So it's very challenging to be a Christian in Pergamum. And the exhortation that we find here in this letter is, don't allow false teaching which leads then to compromised living. Don't allow false teaching, which then leads to compromised living. And then the promise is, is what we'll find is that King Jesus does and will identify and fellowship with you in glory. And that's the hope and the promise in the midst of this letter. Let's consider these things together. And I've, I've got two sort of ways to, to unpack this together this morning. They're a little bit wordy, so you're just going to have to bear with me on this. But hopefully the wordiness is clear. And so the first thing that as we consider this letter to Pergamum is that we find the ever-present danger of cultural compromise. That if we want to hold on to King Jesus until the very end, we need to realize that there is an ever-present danger of cultural compromise. And then secondly, we're going to hopefully find the confidence-producing joy of gospel renewal. That when the church gathers together as a whole group like this, or in smaller groups, or even in one-to-ones, that when we gather together, that we are encouraging one another with a confidence-producing joy that's found and rooted in and fueled by gospel renewal. That's what King Jesus is leading the Pergamum Church to consider. And so hopefully for us today, we too will consider that. So let's work through this together. The first is the ever-present danger of cultural compromise. Let's look back again at verses 12 through 15. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, place of authority. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. 
so also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. What we find here in the ever-present danger of cultural compromise is that a compromised heart leads to compromised living. A compromised heart leads to compromised living. So the issue of the heart is crucially important because it will show up in the manner in which we live. So let's consider what we find here in this compromised heart and then compromised living that sort of hit and plagued the church in Pergamum. First, compromised heart. We need to first and foremost understand the context. Context of Pergamum. So what is it that we know about this place? We know that it was a capital city in Asia Minor. We know that it was a center city of Roman political and religious identity and cultural values where the Roman world combined politics and religion into this one force to sort of have a rule over people. And so that was the context in which this church was was birthed in. It had cultural obstacles, and we also know that those cultural obstacles had intense spiritual opposition operating in the background. There were a couple of phrases in there that you probably, like, raise your eyebrow at. Is that really where Satan dwells? Is that really it? Is that the place of his throne? What's going on with those sort of references to Satan's throne and where Satan dwells? Well, the the point of that is to say, behind earthly opposition to the church, there is evil spiritual opposition at play. If you remember one of our, um, our, our key as we move through Revelation, life is hard. And evil is real. We live in a world where life is hard. It is hard for everyone. And then there's a different kind of hard and challenge to those who are following Christ. Life is hard. And because life is hard, we need to see an even bigger picture. Evil is real. So we find here in Pergamon both cultural obstacles and spiritual opposition. Cultural obstacles, difficult to live there and follow Christ, and spiritual evil opposition. And both of those things meeting together in what this particular church had to deal with in these false teachers. These false teachers. We don't know exactly the content of what the false teachers were teaching, but whatever it was, it was leading the people of God into spiritual adultery that then led to a compromised lifestyle which included sexual sin. And we know this because King Jesus uses an Old Testament story as a word picture for what's happening in Pergamum. If you have, you don't have to turn there now, but in your Bibles you can go to, uh, excuse me, Numbers chapters 22 through 25 and read the story of Balaam, leading Balak and the people of God into spiritual adultery, which then showed up in how they lived into sexual sin. Again, a compromised heart leads to compromised living. What our heart's treasure will show up in how we live. Now, strong likelihood, the reason for these false teachers was because of the difficulties of being a Christian in Pergamum. The false teachers most likely were seeking to convince the church to participate in pagan festivals that were associated with various guilds or vocations. 
That was very, very common in the Roman world to have a pagan festival of some sort that appeased that guild or vocation's God. And those sorts of festivals usually had all sorts of compromised lifestyles associated with them, oftentimes including and especially sexual sin. So you could see the teachers sort of saying, go to this festival. You don't want to lose your job. Go to it, but don't really mean it. You don't have to worry about it because it's a dead God, it's an idol, so, so don't worry about that. Just go and do the part, and then, and then you can kind of keep your vocation. And then you can see it sort of going down the slippery slope, give in to this sexual sin, but just don't mean it. Compromised heart leads to compromised lifestyles. And they maybe wanted to do that to minimize the cost that comes with following Christ in a hard world where evil is real. Because following Christ carried a cost. It put us in challenging situations in which the values around us do not match the values of our King. Compromised heart leads to compromised living. And we also find here that there is a real and present, ever-present danger associated with false teaching. I would broadly define false teaching as something that leads to heart to accommodate space for something other than Christ to be treasured. To hold up and to hold out to you something other than the all-sufficiency of King Jesus for you to be a treasure of your heart, whatever that might be. It seeks to diminish our awareness of the full sufficiency of God for us in Christ. And as it does that, it will then distract and displace your heart from treasuring Christ. Diminish, distract, displace. And Jesus is saying that will ultimately lead to destruction. So it's serious. The danger is real. It is crucial that the church is very sound when it comes to understanding who God is and what he has done for us in the personal work of Christ and why that means everything. Because whatever our heart treasure will show up in how we live. So we, you and I, we need sound doctrine to help keep the heart with all vigilance. But we also don't want to be like Ephesus. If you remember a few weeks back, Ephesus was happy to have those fights. They were just having those fights in an incredibly loveless context. They wanted to argue with anyone and everyone. They, they were ready to go at any moment. I can't imagine that community being all that encouraging, though, either. Jesus had a problem with the context of Ephesus. But he also has a problem with the context of Pergamum. It's not so much, you're false, let's fight. It's, it's not that bad, don't sweat it. King Jesus had an issue with both of them. We desperately need soundness to keep our heart with all vigilance. Our elder team meets twice a month. The second time of the month, the second meeting of the month, we devote some time for elder development, just to help us 
grow at being elders. And right now we're working through a resource called Gospel Eldership. How to understand being an elder with the gospel primary. And it's helping us think through these things of what comes with the responsibility of being an elder in the life of a church. And in, the, in the, just this last week, in our chapter that we were working through together, we had this description. Sound doctrine gives people a clear view of Jesus. So it's just put in a positive state. Instead of fighting against things that are false, the, the joy of holding up what is true and what is sound is that it gives us all a clear view of Jesus. With soundness being like in the hull of a ship that carries us on our journey, and it's sound in the hull of the ship so we don't sink. And so the things of our teaching and preaching in the life of our church, the focus of our church, being led by elders, is so that we can hold up and hold out a clear view of Jesus. Why? Well, it goes on to say this. So that they, us, we, the church, Trinity, can know Him, Jesus, more fully, trust Him more boldly, enjoy Him more deeply, This is why we need it, because first of all, Jesus is worth it. He is worth the focus and the attention. He's worth being the treasure. And we need it so that we can trust, know him more fully, trust him more boldly, and enjoy him more deeply. The danger of false teaching is that it wants to lead us away from that experience wants to obscure our view of how sufficient and awesome Jesus is. Doesn't want us to know him more fully or trust him more deeply or enjoy him more thoroughly. False teaching wants to, to move that away, move our hearts off of that. And if our hearts are compromised, then soon our living will be too. And that's what we find in Pergamum, a compromised living. Two aspects of compromised living that I want to draw out. What compromised living reveals and what compromised living requires. First of all, compromised living, at least as what we can see here in Pergamum, compromised living reveals fear. It reveals fear. It could be fear of the consequences that come from following King Jesus in a life-is-hard-evil-is-real kind of world. It could be fear of missing out on what would otherwise be a relatively easy or comfortable or good life. You look around and say, well, everybody else seems to be having an okay time. Why can't I? Psalm 73 would be a great place to camp out if your heart wrestles with that. It could also just be fear that God won't be enough in the face of such difficulties and challenge. It's a fear that's being sourced by unbelief. That God can or God will. But a compromised living reveals fear. It reveals fear. And what does it require? Well, besides using the word everything, let's maybe add a couple of thoughts around what that everything means. What does it require? Well, first of all, it requires that we treasure something else. 
that you and I, we treasure something else. It might be that we treasure comfort. It might be that we treasure acceptance. Maybe we treasure a no-conflict kind of life. And we, we, we put it on an equal level in our hearts to treasuring Christ. Something else is eventually gaining the foothold of our hearts. And whatever that is, it will show up in our lives. And we, and I, I say this also to my own heart, 20 years in ministry, I've seen this story play out a thousand times. And I feel the pull in my own heart too. We can make so many allowances and excuses for things we know will distract our hearts or our time from the things of God. All the while keeping the things of God arm's length away. I know that was a mouthful, but you know that feeling. We make so many allowances. We are far gracious to ourselves than we are to other people. We don't allow other people the same amount of allowances we give ourselves, do we? It could be travel sports. It could be politics. Could be a secular view of sexual ethics. Could be anything. Whatever allowance we give in our heart to be a treasure to us, it will pull us away. Compromised living requires we treasure something else. Secondly, Compromised living requires we flip the over-under estimations. You're like, what? <laughs> Give me a second. But we flip them. We invert them. We put them in the wrong place. What do I mean? First of all, we overestimate our ability to control the compromise while underestimating the seriousness of the danger this compromise poses to our souls. We overestimate our abilities. Oh, I can handle this. And we underestimate the seriousness of the situation. We can't domesticate false teaching. We can't domesticate compromised living. Just like we have no business anywhere, our backyards are in the middle of Las Vegas, of domesticating a tiger. That's just straight lunacy. And, it, and then if you have to wear outfits that come with sequins, there's no reason for any of this. We cannot domesticate something we can never, ever, ever, ever control and is far more ferocious than we realize. Compromised living requires we treasure something else and we flip the over-unders. Now, that's sobering, isn't it? I mean, that's... That's a sobering call. That's a sobering exhortation and challenge and analysis of what's going on in this church. But it's not necessarily where it ends and lands. King Jesus cares deeply for his people. And he wants to lead them out of a situation in which their heart is slipping into compromise, which then soon their life will follow. 
And he wants them to know that there is a confidence-producing joy in gospel renewal, in, in the renewal of being centered and treasuring Jesus over everything. All that God is for us in the personal work of Christ is so much more sufficient than we ever possibly could dare to dream or hope. And it has way more tentacles that reach down into the street level, curb level of our lives than we could possibly dare to think. It really is that relevant and really is that amazing. And so we are called to come back to the reality that in Christ we have all that we need. Even if following him puts greater difficulty in our lives. He is saying to us here in the remainder of this passage that he is enough and he will be with us to the end and we will see and know and fellowship with him into glory. So hold on. Let's look again at verse 16 and 17. Therefore, this is King Jesus. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the ones who conquer, I will give him Give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. We have the confidence producing joy of gospel renewal. And what do we do in gospel renewal? We are rehearsing grace. 16 and 17 are words of grace from the king to us. Words of grace leading us away from a compromised heart and compromised living. Words of grace leading us to him. God has grace for you. You may sometimes wonder if you exhaust all his grace for you because you do the same things again and again and again. You feel frustrated. You feel the insanity of sin. It's crushing guilt and shame that you drag around in your heart all day, every day. And then you gather up your kids and your family and your whatnots and you come to church and you plop down in a chair and you wonder sometimes, is this really enough? And I want to say to you, he has more grace in him than you have sin in you. And he's saying here in these verses, there's grace to lead you back. There's renewal here. And in that, we find first the grace of repentance. A couple of weeks back, we had talked about this. So I'm just refreshing what we said. What is happening in repentance? Well, it consists of three things. That we turn from something. That we are turning from sin in the slippery slope of a compromised heart. We recognize sin for what it is, a rejection of God. We turn around. We, we turn around from that. We're going down a pathway, a direction that is awful, and we just simply turn around. That's one aspect of repentance. But we have to turn around to something, otherwise we'll find some other offshoot pathway that's a dead end. And so repentance is also a turning to It's a turning to God through faith in Christ for forgiveness and grace. It's turning from, and and King Jesus is calling us to do this. What a grace. Turn from that compromised heart and life. And turn to me through faith. You will know forgiveness and grace. And then thirdly, it's living new. That change of direction that occurs in our hearts leads to a change of life. We start doing new things or we start doing things new a change that occurs in us. This is awesome, and this is the overflow of grace. If a compromised heart leads to compromised living, then a repenting heart leads to repenting living. That is not just a one-time action, but a way of living. 
that we are turning from, turning to, living new. What a grace the king throws out to us. And in that, he also gives us the grace of acceptance, that he welcomes us to do this. He welcomes us back into this. There are two interesting phrases there in 17. Um, Hidden manna and white stones with new names. Look at verse 17. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So what's going on here? What, what's happening here in these references? Again, keep in mind that Revelation is a very symbolic book. So it's taking these things as, a, as say, word pictures that come to your head and heart. And, it, and they're conveying, say, spiritual truths or encouragements. You can kind of put that together and, and see that there are times in which that these things, like, like hidden manna and white stones with new names, are for our spiritual encouragement. And so first, hidden manna. Well, think about what manna means. It's certainly a a reference to something in the Old Testament, a moment we considered last year when we were in Exodus, God providing manna for the people in the wilderness. Food, sustenance, fellowship. Manna was even placed into uh, the Ark of the Covenant that was in the tabernacle and then in the temple, representing God is going to be with his people and fellowship with them. They will feast together on his grace. And so Jesus is saying that the ultimate destination of a believer is forever fellowship with him. That even if you're following Jesus in this hard life, evil is real world, leads to lots of struggle and challenge and opposition and suffering, that will pale in comparison to the fellowship and feasting that you will have with King Jesus. It's amazing. What a grace that he accepts us to the party. And he says, come on in. The food is divine. So what's going on with the white stones? With the new names? Well, there are a couple of ways in which white stones were used in the ancient world. I think the one main way that is relevant here, especially in light of the strong likelihood of pagan festivals that were being used to um, you know, worship false deities and um, that the people of God were being sort of struggling with in terms of their involvement, is that white stones were often used as an admission ticket. An admission ticket, especially into festivals like that. Your white stone was how you got in. And Jesus is saying, I've got a white stone for you. I've got a white stone to a festival with no, no end. I'm going to put a new name on that, redeemed. A new name on that, mine. And you have that stone. And you might be following me and feel rejection and ridicule in this world, but I'm not going to reject you. I'm not going to ridicule you. I'm going to welcome you. I'm going to accept you. I'm going to bring you in. And so in the midst of a world that is hard and wearying, we are needing gospel renewal And we find in the gospel renewal that we have a confidence-producing joy. That you belong to king, and the king belongs to you, and he won't let you go, so hold on. Hold on. Because of the saving faith in Christ, you may be despised and rejected in this world. You are granted entrance into the one that comes next.
grace of repentance, the grace of acceptance, and then lastly, is just the grace of renewal. Friends, we get to make much of this every week when we are gathered together like this. And do you know what? We need to make much of this every week. The world is always going to be hard and evil is definitely very real. What are we going to do with our time that is going to profit us more than making much of a king who has grace for sinners such as us? So friends, Jesus, King Jesus, is worth treasuring. He's worth treasuring through all of life. He's worth treasuring through worship. He's worth treasuring in community. He's worth treasuring on mission. These words, treasuring Christ through all of life in worship, community, and mission, they're not just simply empty taglines or plastic generic statements. Friends, I mean this with every fiber of my being. We have a future together as a church. And my hope and my pleading is that that future is us collectively growing and delighting in and declaring the ultimate worth of Jesus that He's worth treasuring. That there isn't anything else worth treasuring than what we have from God in King Jesus. There's nothing else that our hearts should treasure. So together when we sing, when we pray, when the word is preached or taught, when we get into conversations of care for one another, when we walk through the foundations of the faith and when we help each other grow and mature and multiply, when we long to see others come to know Jesus too, when we invest in other people's lives so that they may interact with us in such a way that gives us the opportunity to tell them about the King and all of His good news, when we gather together for prayer nights and we get to rejoice that God heard our prayer and someone was saved and we get to rejoice, we desperately need this. Because our hearts can go down slippery slopes quickly. A church can sink under the slippery slope of bad and false teaching quickly. And so we must together hold up a clear view of King Jesus and say, He's worth treasuring through all of life. In 1517, there was a... distinguishing moment in the history of the church. A reformation, or I would like to put it as a rediscovering of how glorious the gospel is. It all happened in a gospel renewal moment in the heart of a guy named Martin Luther. And he tacked on to Wittenberg's door a, a thesis, if you will. 95 theses. Gospel renewal statements. Of why, why treasuring Christ was far greater than what was happening in the church at the time. Number 62 of those 95 hits our hearts in light of what we've considered. The true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. So our treasure, friends, 
Our heart as a church is going to be fixated on what we treasure. And what we treasure will shape how we live. Hear the warning from Pergamum. See the worthiness of the king. Rest in his grace and his welcome. And let's make much of him with great clarity and compelling passion. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would do such a work in us, in our church, through our church, so that others would come to know your saving grace, the worthiness of Christ, the joy that is found in belonging to him and the strength to live this life in a hard world where evil is real. We need you, God, to do this good work in us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.